Hey, this is John Joyner, and I believe in the power of story, how it can impact a life, how it can carry truth and wisdom, how it connects us to others. And that's where this podcast begins. It exists as a connection point. You see, these stories are not my stories. They're all of ours. So, my friends, welcome to Social Stories. Welcome to Social Stories. This is a special episode. It is the Halloween episode of season two. Consider this us gathering around a campfire. And uh, can you hear the crackle? Can you smell the smoke? And uh, I'm about to tell a scary story around that campfire. Might even have a flashlight under my chin for some of it. So you can imagine the setting, right? That's where we're going. Uh, But if you know nothing about this podcast, that's okay because you can jump right in today and uh, you don't need anything from the past to understand what's going on in this episode because this is what we do. Social Stories is a collaborative creative space where we invite anyone who wants to to submit a story prompt that's usually via social media. It's about one sentence long, maybe a couple sentences, can be really well put together or just a random string of words. And then we compile those story prompts and then we sift through them to see if any stories grow from those seedling ideas. And then ultimately we narrate the tales in recorded episodes right here on the podcast. That's what you're listening to now. But let's get right into the story this week. The prompt comes from Seth White, and this is a unique prompt. It's a lot different than all the other traditional prompts we've gotten before because Seth and I were hanging out And he said, hey, John, there's this house that I drive by sometimes that I always see it and I always go, what happened here? He said, hey, I'd love for you to drive by it and see if you can, if that can be the story prompt, if you can come up with any idea of what occurred at this house. And so I did. I drove by, I went out of my way on my way home from work and I, I drove by this house and It was really fascinating because I understood why he always wondered what happened here. It was an abandoned house. It's it's not uh, an old one. It looked actually fairly new-ish, you know, within the last 30 years being built. And and there was this tree that had fallen through. There was this massive hole in the roof. But the most striking detail was that all of the trees in the front yard were dead. Uh, None of the other trees that sort of on the outskirts of the property, all around the, the the property line, were dead. None of them were, but the ones like right in the middle of the the yard were all these husks that were sort of sticking up out of the ground. And and I actually I took a picture, and I'm going to post that on the social media page. That's at Social Stories Podcast, so you can take a look at that picture. It's not perfect because I didn't get close. I didn't get really close enough for you to get all the details, but. But you can go there and see that photo to understand maybe some of the context of where we're going with this unique prompt. But from that moment, I had the idea to write a Halloween episode and to see what would happen when I attempted to come up with a scary story. And so now we're here at that episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. This is Social Stories Season 2, Episode 6. And it's called Black Thumb. 
Where are we going? Pearl Jones asked as Stephanie Smith and Winona Garland walked ahead of her on the sidewalk. Ice cream, Chuck. It's Friday night tradition, Stephanie said over her shoulder with barely a glance in Pearl's direction. Stephanie's perfectly cascading blonde hair shimmered in the dusking light, giving off that popular girl sheen that Pearl could never hope to achieve with her frizzy, fro-like hair that refused to be tamed. Oh, okay, Pearl said, reaching into her pocket for a lactate chewable. Without the pill, she'd never get through tonight's sleepover with the impending intake of dairy. It was already bad enough that her mother had forced her into this particular social engagement, threatening to take away Pearl's reading books for a week if she didn't go along with the idea, the epitome of punishment in Pearl's eyes, but it would be an all-out disaster for her lactose intolerance to flare up. Being a freshman girl at a new school in a new town was already hard enough. She didn't need stories of bathroom mishaps at Stephanie Smith's house to start floating around the hallways. How did I end up sleeping over at Stephanie Smith's house? Pearl wondered again, watching Stephanie and Winona traipse down the sidewalk, hand in hand, because they'd been best friends since kindergarten. Pearl didn't have anyone she would consider her best friend. Her family had never stayed in one place long enough for a bond like that to develop. She had learned how to be alone, and honestly, quite enjoyed her solitude. Pearl had lived a thousand lives already. For each book she found herself within took her to a new world and into a new life. She considered herself to be a very well-rounded young woman, with loads of life experience learned through the pages of her favorite stories. Her mother, however, thought Pearl's lack of social interaction a troublesome thing indeed. So when the family moved here, to God knows where, Pearl had stopped learning the names of the new towns and the new schools as she considered the effort of memorizing even so small a fact an unnecessary waste of mental energy. Her mother had struck up a conversation at the local grocery store with a woman named Helen Smith. Following a few paces behind her mother, Pearl had been reading on her Kindle when her mother had stopped. Pearl nearly ran into the buggy. When she glanced up from her digital page and found her mother engaging and unfamiliar, as Pearl called them, she felt a pang of social anxiety. She had no idea how her mother could just go around willy-nilly, striking up conversations with total strangers. In that moment, Pearl returned to her book, barely registering her name when her mother introduced her. Pearl had no idea that this small, seemingly insignificant interaction would lead to tonight's sleepover— but it had, as her mother and Helen discovered a shared interest, their 14-year-old daughters. Later, the threats of a Kindle in time out convinced Pearl to pack a bag and walk over to the Smith's house for a good, old-fashioned American sleepover, something Pearl had never experienced nor desired to experience. So far, they had eaten dinner around the Smith's enormous dining room table, where Stephanie and Winona spent the majority of the meal engaging one another, and no one else. Helen and her husband, Patrick, tried to converse with Pearl, but ended up mostly talking amongst themselves. Stephanie's little brother, Orin, an eight-year-old, was Pearl's conversation partner. Or, more accurately, Pearl had transformed into a giant ear into which Orin spilled facts about Star Wars, Pokemon cards, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, none of which interested Pearl in the least. 
After dinner, Stephanie and Winona pushed back from their seats simultaneously, yet without warning, and began to leave the house. Pearl figured that had been as good an escape opportunity as ever, and luckily, because Oren had just begun discussing his thoughts on the Marvel Universe, Pearl had a feeling he had many thoughts on such a thing. Stephanie and Winona were the quintessential popular girls at Pearl's new high school. It took her all of five minutes on her first day, four weeks into the first semester, to figure that out. Pearl's dad's job changes almost never lined up with school semesters, which was the hardest part about the transfers. When a new kid arrives on day one of a new year, it feels like a natural transition, as everyone else is also experiencing newness in some way. But showing up a month after everyone has already settled in, Pearl's experience, by and large, that was difficult. But it also meant she'd developed an uncanny ability to spot the school cliques. The nerds, the jocks, the cheerleaders, the art students, the musicians, the popular kids. And at this particular school, it quickly became obvious that Stephanie and Winona were at the top of the food chain. The two popular girls approached the ice cream truck and made their orders. When they stepped to the side, ice cream in hand, giggling about something one of them had just said, Pearl approached the window. The man was in the uniform of a 1950s ice cream barman. White pants, white polo tucked in, red bow tie, and one of those paper soda jerk hats with a red stripe running down the center. What can I get you? He asked cheerfully, bracing himself against the metal bar of the truck with both his arms extended forward. Pearl noticed he had a nice smile and what looked like strong arms. He might have been in his late teens or early twenties. Pearl was a bad judge of age and couldn't say either way. I'll take a strawberry shortcake bar, she said unable to stop herself from smiling at the cute boy. Her cheeks flushed when he stared at her a little longer than was socially normal, a sideways grin growing on his own face. A classic choice. I like that. He turned around and opened the refrigerator. Most young adults these days want the Spongebob popsicle with the creepy gumdrops for eyes or the Disney princess bars. I enjoy the classics myself. Pearl noticed his tag displayed the name Gavin. Well. Thank you for the validation, Gavin, Pearl said, surprised at herself for saying something not only coherent, but also semi-flirty. She took the pink and white ice cream bar and stepped to where Stephanie and Winona were almost finished with their Disney princess bars. Jasmine for Stephanie and Pocahontas for Winona. Stephanie's lips were turning teal from the color of Jasmine's top. Pearl giggled, at which Stephanie shot her a disgusted look, as if to say, what are you laughing at? Then Stephanie and Winona started to walk away again with no forewarning of their destination. Where are we going now? Pearl asked, chewing on the top of her ice cream bar. To the park, Winona said. It's, let me guess, Friday night tradition, Pearl interrupted. Winona didn't acknowledge Pearl's questioning answer, instead rolling her eyes at being interrupted. As they walked, Pearl had the deepest urge she had ever experienced— like being pulled into a supermassive black hole, to extract her Kindle from her bag and get back into her current book. But her mother had taken her e-reader for safekeeping, promising to return it after the sleepover, a little collateral to assure Pearl's compliance through the entire evening. The grade of the sidewalk steepened, and at the top, Pearl came to a stop, mouth agape at the sight of the house at the crest of the hill. 
The house was tucked in an alcove of trees, surrounded on all sides but the front by densely wooded forest. There were several trees in the front yard, but they were all dead. Gray stalks sticking up uselessly out of the ground. The grass was dry, withered, bald patches of dirt sprinkled throughout. Pearl noted several raised flower beds that were filled with sunken and molding soil. No sign of any plant life within their wooden borders. Then she saw that the house must have been abandoned, for a tree had fallen on it, likely during a monstrous thunderstorm, and had crushed the roof, smashing open a gaping hole which had yet to be repaired. Hurry up, Pearl, Stephanie said, twenty paces ahead, exasperation in her voice. This is not the place you want to stand and gape. Let's go. The last two words were a command from the queen, and Pearl obeyed. A ten-minute walk later, they arrived at the park where Stephanie and Winona aimed for the swings. Conveniently for them, there were two. They both sat on the hard rubber seat, gripped the metal chains, and started chatting with each other, swinging slightly because of a light breeze, but nothing resembling swinging was occurring like it would have been if Pearl had gotten to the structure first. At fourteen, she still liked to swing as high as she could and rocket herself at the apex of the trajectory, but, alas... Her only seating option now was a faded, dented hippopotamus on a large, rusting spring. What did you mean this is not the place to stand and gape? Pearl asked, interrupting the two girls' conversation. Stephanie looked affronted as only a teenage girl can, but reluctantly answered. That house is haunted. Pearl laughed, but when neither Stephanie nor Winona joined her, she swallowed the sound. Wait, are you serious? Of course she's serious. Winona said, her purple eyeliner popping in the sunset hour. For a fleeting moment, Pearl thought of the Incredibles movie, and how similarly Winona resembled the daughter. What was her name? Viola? Vivian? Violet? Something like that. Well, what happened? Pearl asked when she untangled herself from thoughts about Pixar movies. Stephanie glanced at Winona and whispered something in her ear. Winona smiled and nodded. Okay, Stephanie said. I'll tell you the story, but only if you agree to take a lap around the haunted house when I'm done. It's a rite of passage of sorts, you know, to test your courage. Winona tittered. Pearl knew what was going on. These two popular girls, forced to hang out with a quote-unquote loser tonight, thought that the least they deserved was a little entertainment at Pearl's expense. Maybe even thought they might get her to pee her pants in fright. Well... Pearl would go along with their little ruse and then walk around the dumb house like it didn't bother her at all because it probably wouldn't. Whatever story Stephanie was about to unfold was surely local legend with as little truth in it as there was truth on the news these days. Of course, it would be dark by the time they got back to it and the house did look creepy, but in the end, it was just a house. Deal, Pearl said, and again, Stephanie and Winona looked at each other, grinning. Stephanie began. The house was like any other, a place of warmth and love and life for a while. Brom Damien and his wife Lucille used their savings for the down payment, draining the account with the intention of settling here, putting down roots in our quaint little town. Along with their furniture and materials, they moved their hopes and dreams into those four walls. Brom, the son of a farmer, had a knack for growing things. His father, who owned the largest private 
corn farm in Kansas taught Brahm the way of the harvest, but Brahm wasn't interested in commercial farming. A different aspect of nature felt more compelling to him. Trees and plants and flowers, especially those which could be enjoyed in the privacy of his own home. When he was in high school, his parents divorced, and he and his mother moved to New York to finish out his schooling. When he and Lucille eventually moved here to our town, away from the expectations of his father to run the family farm, and away from the expectations of his mother to become a doctor, a fresh start opened before him, the opportunity to do whatever he wanted. He opened a nursery, thought the ability to help others obtain and maintain thriving plant life at their homes sounded like a noble and fulfilling calling. And the nursery business boomed. I've heard from people who bought from Brahm that whatever plant you purchased at the nursery seemed to have a supernatural ability to not only live but thrive. Brahm's trees and shrubs and bushes grew fast and healthy and tall. His flowers achieved hues the other plants couldn't even dream of. Plant life was not only his business, it was his passion. However wonderful the plants sold at his nursery were, those he tended to himself at his own home were somehow even more spectacular. The Damien residents gained local notoriety that slowly expanded to cities and towns hours away. People would drive from all over for the opportunity to catch a glimpse of the Damien house, where the trees stood like the king's guard in the front yard. Straight, impressive, and, in a word, perfect. Some came only to see the sight of the yard lined with a continuous bed of flowers boasting every color of the rainbow, but the crowning achievement of the landscape were the topiaries of ballerinas, shaped in honor of his wife. Lucille had been born a ballerina. From the moment she could stand, she began training in point work. Dance, to her, was something more than art. It was air in her lungs. By the time she was six, her parents enrolled her in the School of American Ballet. And ten years later, just after her sweet 16, she was performing professionally in the New York City Ballet. In the same way Brahm appeared to imbibe some form of magic into the plants in his nursery, Lucille seemed to glide with a supernatural ability on the stage, empowering her movement with otherworldly grace. And that power... The power of her dance rendered even the most callous heart soft. Not one person who ever witnessed her movement walked away with a dry eye. And so it was, as Lucille captivated another audience in the fall of Brahms' senior year, that he first laid eyes upon her. A school field trip to the ballet, which Brahm had little interest in beyond the fact that it allowed him to skip an entire day of regular classes, became one of those moments in life that feel like destiny, a single moment that echoes through a person's entire existence. Brahm couldn't peel his eyes off Lucille as she moved around the stage with grace and poise, performing the moves as if she were the creator of each technique. After the performance, Brahm skipped the bus ride back to school in order to meet Lucille, a decision he paid the price for over a week of detentions. He was a charmer, had always known exactly what to say to make girls swoon, and it was no different with Lucille. He invited her to coffee that afternoon, and they spent the rest of the day walking around Central Park, exchanging stories from the past, current dreams, and future hopes. 
From that day on, they were inseparable. Brahm matriculated at NYU on a path to medical school. While Lucille worked full-time at the ballet, they believed they were lifelong New Yorkers, destined to live the city life as a wealthy doctor and a famous dancer. But that all changed in one moment. One dreary winter night, Lucille left Brahm in their apartment, heading to a late-night rehearsal the day before opening night of a new performance. She had been cast as the lead. She entered the elevator, nothing out of the normal. One of their neighbors exited their door down the hall and called for her to keep the doors open for them to ride with her. She obliged by stepping her leg back down into the hallway to prevent the closing movement. What happened next is a mystery to this day, unexplainable but for a few working theories. Some say lightning struck and fried the electronics of the elevator. Some say Lucille's understudy, a bitter woman five years Lucille's senior, who always believed she deserved the leads but never got them, paid the elevator company to rig the door. Whatever you want to believe about why, what happened next changed Lucille's life. The elevator doors closed. The hydraulics pressed the metal with force, clamping around her legs such that she was unable to yank it free. Lucille, in a panic, smashed the door open button to no avail. The elevator began to descend until Lucille's leg brought the elevator car to a halt, and then the growing force of the hydraulics ripped her leg clean off. Pearl gasped, as did Winona. Stephanie didn't register their auditory exhalation, engrossed in her own story. Pearl suddenly remembered where they were, overtaken by surprise at the popular girl's storytelling ability. People can be full of surprises, she thought. Stephanie continued in sort of a trance. Brom rushed to the elevator when his neighbor banged furiously on their door, screaming unintelligibly. He saw the blood pouring from underneath the elevator doors, and then his eyes found the lifeless leg. An ambulance was called. A month in the hospital followed, and Lucille's life seemed to be draining away with each passing day. The loss of her leg was not just the loss of her career, it was the violent, forceful theft of her very air. She was suffocating. The doctors prescribed a strict regimen of physical therapy, where Lucille would learn to walk on a prosthetic. She would never dance again, but with the proper input of hard work, she might learn to walk, they said. And six months into marginally successful rehabilitation, Lucille had found new life and purpose to work toward, but decided she couldn't remain in New York. It was simply too painful to constantly be reminded what she had once had and where she had once been going, before the elevator took her to a place she had never expected. That's when they moved here, to this town. And that's when they still had hope the future could actually be bright despite Lucille's life-altering injury. Over the months of settling into their new hometown, Brahm and Lucille decided to start a family. Brahm's plant nursery was lucrative, and Lucille had begun writing novels, the first story that of a little amputee girl learning to dance. It was around this time when Brahm carved Lucille the ballerina topiaries. Life was good and Lucille anticipated it would get even better once they had a little one on the way. But months of trying turned into years, 
After much anguish and feeling completely inadequate, they finally turned to a specialist who handed them the hard truth of Lucille's barrenness. Brom thought he had seen the worst dimming of Lucille's light at the hospital on the night when she lost her leg as the gravity of her injury sunk in. But that dimming had been nothing compared to the darkness which overtook her in the wake of the doctor's diagnosis. She stopped wearing her prosthetic leg, stopped trying to be independent. Depression grew like a scaly beast until she was immobile for all intents and purposes, never got out of the house, and barely even got out of bed. Rumor has it, Brahm had not sympathized with Lucille's barrenness in subsequent depression, and instead channeled his emotions into rage, screaming at her for stealing his chance to have a child. In the weeks following the diagnosis, the Damien residents doubled in plant life as Brahm went psychotic, installing new flowers and shrubs and trees, and they said he began treating them like children. For all the time Brahm spent outside... Lucille withered away inside. She stopped eating, lost 30 pounds, which she couldn't afford to lose in the first place. Depression ate away at her mentally and emotionally, as starvation ate away at her physically. Legend has it that one day, when Brahm was yelling at her again, Lucille put on her prosthetic leg and left the house for the first time in a year— she grabbed Brahms' trimmer and proceeded to hack off one leg from each topiary ballerina so that they would more resemble her true self. However poorly it worked in actuality, she believed by replicating herself in the bushes, she was building an army of defense against Brahms' rage. And unfortunately, it was a powerless army, for that was the last day anyone ever saw Lucille. They say that Brahm finally murdered her. Defacing his garden was the last straw. And a curious thing happened after that day. Brahm's garden began to die. It's thought that when he murdered Lucille, a curse came upon him. Now everything he touched died. The flowers withered away. The grass yellowed. The bushes and trees dropped their leaves never to bear any again. Their once majestic, unmovable trunks became dead shells, eaten away until they were husks. A storm came through a couple years back that blew over one of the last remaining trees and it smashed through the roof, which, as you saw, was never fixed. The day Lucille died is the day the Damien Garden died. And now, nothing grows around that house, not even the most prolific weeds. No one knows for sure where Brom went after he murdered Lucille. Some say he haunts the woods. Some say he lives in the basement of the abandoned house. Either way, everyone agrees he is slipping slowly into ever-deepening madness. Somewhere nearby. Five years ago, on the anniversary of Lucille's death, a teenage boy went missing in our town. He was never found. A year later, a teenage girl disappeared. And now, every year, one teenager goes missing. They say Brom began kidnapping people who would have been the age of his unborn children. No one knows what he does with them, but the consensus is that he kills them and buries them in the dead Damien Garden. I think it's their bodies that keep the ground from bearing any life, their bones cursing the soil. And you know what, Winona? Stephanie said and looked at her friend dead in the eyes. 
Winona cowered under Stephanie's confident, maniacal glare. We're due for another kidnapping. In fact, if my calculations are correct, today is the anniversary of Lucille's death. Someone is going to go missing, and look at that. She pointed at the sunset. Darkness falls. Shut up, Pearl said, feigning like Stephanie's story hadn't sent shivers up and down her spine several times. You just made that up, that whole story. I bet there hasn't been a missing teenager in this stupid town since the 70s, or at least since before cell phones had cameras. No, Winona said sincerely. She's telling the truth. Well, at least about the kidnappings. Every fall, someone disappears and never returns. I don't think it happens on the same day every year, but it does happen around this season. And now, dear Pearl, it's time for you to make good on your promise, Stephanie said, a mischievous grin stretched across her face. What? Walk around the Damien house? Are you seriously going to make me do that? It's kind of lame. You promised, Stephanie said, a pout appearing for an instant and then dissolving into a grin as quickly. Is your word good or what? Pearl thought about it. She knew Stephanie's story wasn't true. It couldn't be true. So yeah, she was a little freaked out, but she could survive one lap around the abandoned house. She'd jog around the back when she was out of Stephanie and Winona's line of sight and pretend like it wasn't a big deal because in the end, it wasn't a big deal. Nothing was going to happen. Yeah, okay, sure, Pearl said, firing the words in quick succession. Let's get this over with. Stephanie laughed and clapped her hands together in a happy dance. Winona clapped because she felt as if she had an obligation to join Stephanie, but her laugh was fake. Pearl wondered if Winona was having second thoughts about this lap around the house ordeal. Maybe things were getting too real. The three girls left the park and headed back for the sidewalk. They strolled in silence, which gave Pearl the opportunity to study the concrete. She counted the cracks along the way to get her mind off the impending event. Every once in a while... Some weed had punched its way through the edge of the concrete, causing a crack which gave purchase to other weeds, closer and closer to the middle of the slab. Life always found a way, right? And then the grass at the edges of the sidewalk suddenly turned a sickly yellow. There was a clear line of distinction where the healthy grass ended and the dead grass began. They had arrived at the Damien estate. Darkness had settled like a weighted blanket over the town such that now Pearl couldn't make out the features of the dead yard beyond the cast of the sidewalk lights humming overhead. She could still see the shadows of the dead trees in the front yard, looming like so many zombie guards, but all the details had vanished with the light. Okay, Pearl, one lap? That's it. We'll be here when you get back. Stephanie said, pushing Pearl off the sidewalk and into the dead grass, which crunched underneath Pearl's feet. She glanced back at the two popular girls one more time. An eat-crap smile was plastered on Stephanie's face, and a look of worry and concern slid off Winona's. Pearl turned and faced the house, walking with her chin slightly lifted, giving off an air of defiance and confidence in the hope that she would begin to feel those things as she walked toward the abandoned house. But neither of those feelings came. Instead, a dread like a lead cannonball burgeoned in her belly. Every step she took set off louder and louder alarms in her head until she didn't know how her limbs were still moving. But they were. 
She must have put her locomotor skills into autopilot in order to survive this foolhardy endeavor. But now, all she wanted to do was sprint back to the sidewalk and then keep going until she got home. Then, when her mother asked what had happened, she'd say she had a stomachache and didn't care if she didn't get her Kindle back for a week. But she didn't turn around. She kept walking forward. Some primal part of her, that part that desires to fit in, had taken over. If she completed this lap without incident, maybe Stephanie and Winona would have a new respect for her. Maybe, just maybe, for once she would get to be popular in school. What Stephanie meant as a cruel prank, Pearl could turn into her ticket to recognition, possibly even being liked. The house loomed larger and larger, even in the dark. Pearl could see just how massive of a hole the tree had knocked into the roof. No doubt mold, fungus, and all manner of wildlife were living inside the house. Nature couldn't resist such an open door into the indoors. And then something moved inside. Or, at least, Pearl would have sworn to her grave that something had. And it wasn't small. Pearl swiveled her head back to look at the two girls who were her only connection to the outside world, and Stephanie waved cheerfully. Just get around the back and then every step will be closer to safety, Pearl thought, dismissing the movement inside the house as a figment of her overactive imagination. Now she was moving in and amongst the dead trees. Their husks shot a hundred feet into the air, their limbs brittle and leafless. As she looked up, she had the thought of a skeleton hand coming out of the sky and scooping her up. Again, she dismissed the fright that poured into her heart and quickened her pace. She finally reached the house and would now travel along the side. She sidestepped five feet. The more clearance from the house, the better. To her left, dead shrubs stuck up out of the ground. Shrubs which had once been ballerina topiaries. Or at least that's what Pearl assumed. She reached the back corner of the house, turned to look at Stephanie and Winona one more time, took a deep breath in, and stepped into the darkness outside of the street's field of view. She was on her own now. Back here, it was too dark to even see shadows, and she was afraid she had drifted too close to the house without knowing it. As much as she wanted to run, she couldn't risk it, being unable to see anything Pearl reached her hands up in front of her body and felt around until she touched the house. Fear bloomed in her chest, but this was going to be the best and fastest way to navigate the bleary dark backyard. As she passed the largest back window, she noticed a man-shaped shadow cross through a beam in the moonlight that spilled into the house through the enormous hole. Someone was inside, and they were moving toward her. Pearl sprinted, and after three steps, she tripped over an unidentifiable obstacle in her path. She yelped, but pushed herself back up, clambering for the light bending around the other side of the house. If she could just get to the light, Pearl could wave down Stephanie and Winona, who would come to her aid. The back door opened behind her, and her heart leaped so forcefully into her throat she thought she might throw up. The last five steps to the light felt like an hour each, but she finally rounded the building, and in that instant threw her hands into the air and shrieked. But Stephanie and Winona were not standing on the sidewalk. They were nowhere in sight, in fact. She was on her own, a fact which did nothing to slow her down. 
Her feet pounded over the dead grass at a rate which they had never achieved before. Pearl knew from all her books that girls who looked back to see their pursuer were the girls that got caught, and so she kept her eyes straight ahead and pumped her limbs even harder. As soon as she reached the edge of the house, making it back into the front yard, a mere ten seconds from safety, she collided with something massive which dropped her to the ground as if she had run into a parking garage arm at full force. I'm so sorry, a familiar male voice said above her. Pearl lifted herself onto her elbows as she tried to re-establish her breathing rhythm and blinked rapidly until her vision cleared. Standing over her was a man in a white uniform, red bow tie, and a paper hat. Gavin? Pearl said, confused. What What are you doing here? I just finished my shift on the ice cream truck. I saw you and those two girls were coming down the sidewalk. When you disappeared onto the lawn, the other two girls ran away. One was laughing and the other was trying to get her friend to come back, but they kept going. I thought something fishy might be going on, so I came to make sure you were okay. He extended his hand in her direction, and she took it. With the ease of a powerful stroke, he lifted her to her feet. So, are you? Am I what? Pearl asked, her thought processes still refiling themselves. Okay. Oh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I thought those two girls might be my friends, so I guess I was wrong about that. But uh, other than that... Hey, wait! Pearl shouted. Gavin froze at rapt attention. Someone was chasing me! Someone came out of the house after me when I was in the backyard! Gavin frowned. This house has been abandoned for years, Pearl. Nobody lives here. No, Gavin, I promise. Someone was back there. Okay. Are you asking me to check it out? I don't know. Maybe I was just spooked and it was somebody asking for help. Gavin gave her a quizzical smile. You really think that? I don't know, Pearl repeated. Gavin paused for a moment, then said, Okay, let's go see what's back there. He reached inside his pocket and pulled out his cell phone, deftly navigating the screen to pull up the flashlight in two taps of a finger. He began walking, and she followed behind him. So what were you doing anyway? He asked as they moved. Nothing. It was stupid. They were trying to prank me, and apparently it worked. I was scared hardy har. They rounded the house. The back door was, in fact, open. That was closed when I walked by here just a minute ago, and it opened behind me, Pearl said, a shudder running down both her arms from shoulders to hands. Might have been the wind, Gavin offered weakly. He stepped up to the door and shined the light inside the house. Decrepit furniture, dirty wallpaper, cracked flooring, and dark stains came to life in the light of the cell phone. Nothing in here. Gavin said. All clear. Okay, then let's get back to the sidewalk. This place is too creepy for me. Pearl turned to leave the backyard, but Gavin didn't follow. She did a double take, surprised that he hadn't moved yet. What are you doing? Come here, he said, wonder in his voice. I'd rather not, Pearl said. There's something cool in here. Why are you going in? This is the part of the book where the reader would groan at the protagonist for going deeper into the dangerous house. The books don't get interesting until they do the stupid things. And anyway, the protagonists usually live, Pearl. The operative word in that sentence being usually, but not always. Gavin had stepped through the back door and into the house, ignoring her last statement. 
Pearl sighed and sprinted to be with him. She'd rather go in the house with him than be alone anywhere else. When she passed the threshold and came to his side, she discovered the object which had drawn him in. A colossal portrait of a man and a woman, arms wrapped around each other, staring happily into the house, staring at the viewer. The woman was petite and stunning, the man chiseled and handsome. The Damians, Gavin whispered. I've never seen them before. Moved here before they died, he added at her inquiring look. Brom isn't dead, Pearl said. At least according to Stephanie, he isn't. Yeah, I've heard that some people believe he lives in the woods out there. He swept his hands to indicate the back windows. I think that's crazy. When Lucille died, I'd wager Brom wasn't far behind her. Death by broken heart. But he hated her at the end. For not giving him children, Pearl said. I'm guessing that's what Stephanie said. <laughs> Don't believe everything you hear, Pearl. Something tickled at the back of Pearl's brain. A blurry question she couldn't quite bring into focus. Snap. Pearl turned at the sound, which had clearly been produced from a foot breaking a twig. Gavin, Pearl said. Someone's out there. Her voice quivered. Her shoes felt glued to the ground. A shape moved silently outside the window. Slowly, so slowly Pearl's brain had time to dust off the question which had prodded the back of her mind. Gavin, how do you know my name? I know yours because of your name tag, but I never told you mine. What happened next occurred so quickly, Pearl watched it at half speed, taking in every terrifying detail. A man, emaciated and bearded, in a jacket stained with layers of muck and filth, burst through the door, roaring. In his hand was a machete, which gleamed in the scant moonlight. Pearl turned away from him, screaming. Gavin was running toward her, a knife in hand. Pearl's brain computed his expression, moving from glee to confusion as he looked from Pearl to the intruder. Pearl pivoted again to see where the bearded man was now. She was preparing to dive out of the way, but the man moved past her and tackled Gavin. Pearl shrieked as the two men grappled on the ground. Gavin knocked the machete out of the bearded man's hand and shoved the knife into his collarbone. He'd been aiming for the bearded man's throat, but missed by several inches. The man wailed but didn't stop fighting. He pulled the knife out of his collarbone and smashed Gavin in the side of the head with its hilt. Pearl rushed forward and grabbed the man's hand, preventing him from pummeling Gavin again. Let go! He roared at Pearl. She didn't want to, but his strength overpowered her and he brought down another devastating blow against Gavin's temple. Gavin went. Limp. Pearl screamed. Please don't kill him! Pearl begged, falling to her knees. The man looked at her incredulously. He was going to kill you, dear girl, he said in a gruff voice. You should be thanking me. What? I, I don't understand. Then Pearl saw the portrait of the Damians, saw the bright eyes of Brom Damian, and despite how drastically everything else had changed on his exterior, his eyes were the same. Brom? she breathed. He grunted and stood, tossing the knife into the darkness. 
He searched the shadows for his machete and found it under the dilapidated couch. Please don't hurt me, Pearl begged, this time for herself. Dear girl, Brom said, sadness filling his bright eyes. I have no intention of hurting you or anyone else. Can't say the same for Ice Cream Boy over there. Tell me what's going on, Pearl commanded. The fear that was racing around in her chest was demanding answers. That man, he gestured with his thumb to Gavin's crumpled body, has been hunting, kidnapping, and killing kids for the last five years. I suspected he was behind the heinous axe last year when I found a white paper hat in the woods. Mighty strange place to find a paper hat, but I needed to know for sure it was him before I made my move. I'd been tailing him for months, watching his every move, and I began to notice he was particularly interested in one person. You. Tonight, he closed down his truck when you left and followed you and your friends watching from a distance. Always from a distance. When he heard you were coming to this place and, well, he seized the opportunity, snuck inside just before you and the girls arrived. He pushed open the back door when you were running through the backyard and then raced to the front to meet you. Everything he's done has been to get you to trust him so he could get you alone. When he lured you inside, I knew what was going to happen, so I came running. But, but I thought, I thought you were kidnapping teenagers because, well, well, you were trying to... Replace the children me and Luce could never have. Yeah, I know that's what people say. I think this maniac even wanted people to think that. He intentionally chose victims who would lead the town to believe those rumors about me. But, as with any good myth, only slight kernels of truth remain. Then, where, where have you been? What happened to Lucille? Why is your house abandoned and your plant life constantly dead? I hear the rumors. I know it's local legend that I killed my Luce. His voice caught in his throat. And that after I murdered her, I was cursed to kill everything I touched. The former is maybe too true for me to come to terms with, but the latter is simply ridiculous. You didn't answer any of my questions, Pearl said, arms folded. Brom laid the machete down on the floor and collapsed on the old moldy couch. Spores and dust sprayed out at the impact, dancing in the moonlight. She lost her leg in a car accident. I was driving and I... I was... I was tired. Too tired. I had been up all night the day before, finishing a paper for school, and we were driving to see my mom in the suburbs. I... Lost control. The car flipped. Lucy's leg was gored by a pole and the car was pinned on top of us. It took them an hour to get loose out and by then the leg was dead. He stared off and then his eyes focused on the portrait of himself and his wife. His eyes missed it over. Have you ever felt the weight of a guilt so crushing you are certain you will suffocate? I quit school that day. Begged Luce to move away with me to start over somewhere else. After she got her prosthetic leg and had regained the ability to walk, she agreed. After the move, when my business was doing well, we, we started trying to have kids, but every month passed with no success. He looked away from the portrait and locked eyes with Pearl. His stare was intense and uncomfortable. Pearl looked away. You know... We moved here to leave everything in New York behind, but 
Lucille brought something along that neither of us knew about. A tumor the size of a marble and growing. Not only was she unable to get pregnant, her stomach started hurting constantly. We had her abdomen scanned, and that's when they found the cancer. Pancreatic. Stage four. There was nothing they could do. If I hadn't stolen her dream of dance by destroying her leg, the cancer would have eventually done the job nonetheless. Brom wept into his hands, his sobs halting his story. He regained his composure, wiping his nose with his filthy jacket sleeve. She didn't want any of the treatments. With three to six months to live, she wanted to actually live and not be sick from radiation and chemo. And over time, my loose started wasting away. Not three months later, she was a shell of the woman I had met those many years before. The most beautiful dancer in the history of ballet. If someone could have been born with dance in her veins, my loose was. The day she died, she used up her last bit of energy to put on her prosthetic again one last time and walk into the yard to see the plant life. I only noticed she wasn't in the house after she'd been outside for several minutes, and when I went rushing out, she was standing at the topiaries, weeping at what once was. I noticed she kept touching a certain leg on each of the ballerinas, the very leg she had lost herself. She spent half an hour outside, which was literally all she could take. When she collapsed on the bed from her excursion, she told me she loved being married to me. Said she forgave me. For the accident. His voice warbled at the statement. And that she loved me. And then she faded away. Never woke up. The funeral was in her hometown, which is where she's buried. That's hours from here. When I returned alone for the first time, I, I didn't know what to do with myself, so I started drinking, and in my days I hacked off the same leg Lucid lost from each topiary. If she couldn't have it anymore, neither could they. I admit, I was slipping into madness, unable to properly cope with the magnitude of my loss. I was drunk when the storm came that sent that tree into the house, and that was the moment I decided that if Lucille couldn't have her precious life anymore, then neither could this estate. So I poisoned the ground. I killed every flower, every bush, every tree. I still poison the ground. Nothing will ever live here as long as I'm around. I built a small shack in the woods, decided I'd keep two and fend for myself for the rest of my days. Far too many days without my loose. Then, one day I found that paper hat. It was close to my shack. Someone had been nearby without me knowing. At first, I thought it was some neighborhood kid who had heard the fantastical story about what happened at the Damien estate and wanted to see the magic killer for himself. I almost didn't investigate further. But something, I, I don't know what, told me to pursue the truth. So I did. Sneaking around the trees, hiding behind bushes, I discovered the hat belonged to the ice cream boy. And well, you know the rest. But why? Pearl said after a long minute of processing this man's story. Why what? Why did you kill this house? This yard? I told you. If Luce had to die, so did... Wouldn't she have wanted you to keep it alive? Wouldn't she have wanted you and this place to keep living because she was gone? What do you know about my Luce? 
Brom replied harshly. Nothing! You know nothing of her life and her death! Pearl snapped to attention at the tone of his voice, remembering she was alone with a total stranger and an unconscious man in a creepy, abandoned house. I'm sorry, she said to assuage the temper she had stoked. I shouldn't have said, well, I'm just sorry, she finished and gulped. Get out of here, he said, pointing a hand at the open back door. His voice was commanding, but not harsh anymore. When she didn't immediately obey him, he yelled, Go! Pearl sprinted through the door and back to the front yard. When her feet landed on the sidewalk, she felt safe for the first time in an hour. The hot rush of adrenaline subsided, the crash bringing on a wave of weeping. She collapsed onto the pavement to weather through it. She cried for fear and for loss and for being alone and, and for almost being captured by a killer. But when it was over, she stood, dusted herself off, and walked home. Chen Hai. No Kindle for a week was her punishment for abandoning Stephanie and Winona early. Pearl chuckled at the irony, but said nothing more about what actually occurred that night. Two days later, when Pearl approached the wide double doors of her school with every intention of giving Stephanie and Winona the cold shoulder, someone she didn't know stopped her. It was a boy. He was very cute. He said, You're Pearl Jones, right? Pearl looked at him, puzzled, nodded. Uh, yeah? She sputtered. Cool, he said, and opened the door for her. She was so surprised she forgot to start walking again until he said, Where are you headed? She started moving and said, Oh, just my locker. Cool. Mine's in D-Hall, but I should have time to go before first period. You want to grab some breakfast? T together? Pearl sputtered again. Yeah, you and me. If that's cool. Turned out, it wasn't just him and her, however. By the time the first period bell rang, 20 people had gathered around Pearl and Nick. She had found out his name was Nick. And everyone was asking how she took down the ice cream killer all by herself. At first, she was confused. And then, Winona, who had joined the crowd, told her that Stephanie had been talking about the prank they pulled on Pearl. And then a guy named Harry said he had heard that an anonymous caller tipped off the police that the killer was tied up in the abandoned Damien estate. They promptly arrested him. People were putting two and two together and concluding that she was the heroine who defeated the ice cream killer. She spent the entire day fielding questions of her heroics, and she told the entire truth, all except for the part Brom played. For some reason, Brom had left the tip anonymously, and Pearl felt as if he would want to remain that way. If people knew he was involved and living nearby, he might lose the privacy he obviously craved, so she spared him the extra attention. After the final bell, Pearl had never felt more mentally and emotionally exhausted. She wasn't used to everyone being interested in her and paying attention when she talked. She liked it, but also didn't. Instead of taking the bus home, where she knew she would be bombarded by more attention and more questions, she walked home. When she passed the Damien estate, she stopped and stared soaking in the full details of the location where she almost lost her life. If it wasn't for Brom, she would have. Pearl's eyes scanned the yellow grass, the shriveled bushes, the ruined raised flower beds, and the tall, dead tree husks. And then her eye was drawn to something out of place. A single dandelion flower blooming in the middle of the yard. 
She stepped up to the flower and knelt beside it, gently cupping its yellow blossom in her palm. Then she glanced at the house and was startled to see someone staring at her from the window. Brahm, Damien. Pearl waved. Brahm waved back. Pearl pointed at the flower. Brahm nodded. Then Pearl decided she would walk home from school every day so she could pass this house and watch it slowly come to life. There's a lot going on in this story, a lot of themes that we dive into in this one. We hope that you enjoyed it. And if you uh, want to engage the conversation of it, you can go to our social stories podcast Instagram page at social stories podcast and uh, leave us a comment on the the post for Black Thumb and uh, tell us what you think or uh, ask questions you might have or or just make a statement. That's fine. If you want to join in on Social Stories podcast and get your own story prompt in the mix to potentially become a future episode, it's really simple. All you have to do is go to our social media page. Um, that's at Social Stories Podcast, as we have said before. Go check it out. Give us a follow and then uh, send us a private message with your story prompt or comment on one of our posts with SP colon and then lay out your story prompt that way. We'll get it. We'll compile it in our lists. We promise we look at every prompt that comes our way. You could also, if you don't have Instagram or you just don't want to do it that way, you can send us a text at 770-322-4867. We also receive prompts that way. We want to make it easy for you to send at any time of day. Just shoot us a text. That's 770-322-4867. We hope that you enjoyed this spooky episode of Social Stories. As we turn our attention to next week, there's one clue that I'm going to give you to where we're going. Very different than this week's episode. Next week, it's all about a taxidermy herd. What does that mean? Come back next week and find out. Until we read again, my name is John Joyner. I'll see you next time.